Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local area. Today's show features Father Vince Free, a missionary of the Sacred Heart, and his series entitled The Mystery of Vatican II, recorded at St. Raphael Center in March 2008. And now, Father Vince Free. The Second Vatican Council, liberal or conservative? This is the question we are going to address. To what purpose? Simply posing the question may throw light on the workings of the council. Then two, if we find a compelling answer to the question, we might use it as a reference for interpreting the teachings of the council. Of course, if we don't find an answer, (laughs) then we should conclude that it's not a valid question. So let's make sure, first of all, that we know what the question means. For example, some people think that liberals are in favor of change and that conservatives are for the status quo. If we use that formula, the answer is easy. The council advocated change. Therefore, it's liberal, right? Wrong. If the status quo did not conform to conservative views, then a conservative would be the one definitely in favor of change. To get back to what a conservative understands to be the truth. But in any event, if calling for a council had not envisioned some change, the council would not have been called. You can't think that they called the council. So change as such is not the issue. The deeper question, or should I say questions, are why did John the Twenty-Third want change? And what kind of change did he have in mind? A change in identity, a change in purpose, a change in beliefs, a change in perspective, a change in priorities, a change in structure, a change in policy, a change in procedure, or what? There are many kinds of changes possible. But to find out what Pope John XXIII had in mind, all we have to do is three things. Number one, What necessitated change? What was it that made him want to make change? Two, identify what purpose was to be served. And three, look into the motives. What moved him to look for change? So we can say it was the Pope's call for a council and change driven by internal needs inside the church, self-serving purposes, Or was it a response to external needs? A response required by the church by reason of its very nature. So how do we figure this out? Well, we just see what the Pope said. According to his writings, John XXIII saw a need for change because humanity was in a severe crisis. One which the church was not prepared to meet. His express purpose, what he said was all about, was to bring the church's resources into what he described as a distressing state of affairs in the world. What he wanted to do was help establish justice, unity, and peace among all peoples. His motivation was not selfish, nor was it philanthropic. It rested on the conviction. What was his motivation? 
the conviction found in the first epistle of John, which he quotes, that God's love cannot survive in our hearts as Christians if we turn our backs on our sisters and brothers in need. In Pidgin English, you know, in Pidgin English, we used to use this, this really says this nicely. Suppose you give him backside belong you, long brata, you know enough look him God. If you give your backside to your brother, you will not be able to see God. You can't give your backside to your brother. To quote John the 23rd at some length, in the face of this twofold spectacle, a world which reveals a grave state of spiritual poverty and the Church of Christ, which is still so vibrant with vitality, we, from the time we ascended to the Supreme Pontificate, despite our unworthiness and by means of an impulse of divine providence, have felt immediately the urgency of the duty to call our sons together, to give the church the possibility to contribute more efficaciously to the solution of the problems of the modern age. Now, does that look like liberalism or conservatism? You can't put a label on that. But that's what he wanted to do. And that's his motivation was the love of Christ. So let's move on to Paul VI. He took over the direction of the council after John XXIII died in June of 1963. In other words, John XXIII opened the council and he was there for the first session. Before the second session began, Paul VI took over the direction of the council. We find, if we look at it, that he followed the course already set by his predecessor. But he did bring something new. He brought the managerial skills and the experience needed to organize the content and the methodology of the council. The first session was not too well organized. Paul VI, put the, he, what he did was he arranged the content under 16 titles. Those became the 16 documents produced by the Second Vatican Council. And he also set up the procedures, the way this was supposed to be discussed and so forth, aimed at capturing the thought of some 2,500 bishops from all over the world. Now, that's a good trick. In a way that would put their deliberations into pastoral policy and goals best suited for meeting the pressing needs of humanity. So like John XXIII, Pope Paul VI was looking for change, not for the sake or benefit of the church as an end in itself, but for the sake of humanity. They were looking for change a change that reoriented the church to its essential mission. What is its essential mission? Sharing the good news of God's love. Of course, this service of sharing God's love as a means to an end beyond the church could not but benefit the church as well. The, the more we do that, the better off we are. But the motivation was not to make the church better because like I just I just quoted what he said. He said, the church is vibrant. Look at what he said here. The, the, the church of Christ, which is still so vibrant with vitality. The church was, as I said in my earlier talks, it was, it was, a, it was a, right at the top of its game. In the words of Paul VI, there is no doubt that the effort to proclaim the gospel to the people of today who are buoyed up by the hope, but at the same time often oppressed by fear and distress, is a service rendered to the Christian community and also to the whole of humanity. Paul VI goes on to acknowledge that his duty of, quote, confirming the brethren is basic to his pontificate. And again, quoting, all the more noble and necessary when it is a matter of encouraging our brethren in their mission as evangelizers. 
in order that in this time of uncertainty and confusion, they may accomplish this task. Look, their mission as evangelizers, that they may accomplish this task with ever-increasing love, zeal, and joy. In his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world, Paul VI refers explicitly to Vatican II, stating, quote, the objectives of which are definitively summed up in this single one, to make the church of the 20th century ever better fitted for proclaiming the gospel to the people of the 20th century. At the conclusion of the council, Paul VI summed up its entire work in this sentence, one sentence. The church has, so to say, declared herself the servant of humanity. That, that is just tremendous. That, that's a monumental phrase. The church has, so to say, declared herself the servant of humanity. Now, is that liberal or conservative? In short, what these two popes had in mind was certainly Christian and clearly humane. It, well went, it went well beyond the narrow categories of liberal and conservative. How then did we end up where we are? Because, you know, I mean, everybody knows, everybody talked about the council in terms of liberal and conservative. To answer that question, we have to take into account what others made of the council, not just these two popes, not only of the council itself, while it was in session, and how its teachings were interpreted when it ended. Just to uh, refresh your memory, preparations for the council took three years and eight months. Three years and eight months in preparation, during which time the preparatory commission had drawn up 987 position papers that were to be discussed by the bishops. When the council fathers finally convened, the first thing they did was to throw out the entire collection of proposals. The general sentiment among the bishops was that these papers didn't deal with the heart of the matter. What that would prove to be was still an open question, but they wanted to work on it, that question, from scratch. According to some reports, as new documents were being prepared, members of the Vatican staff started to get nervous. After John XXIII died, not a few of them were hoping that the next pontiff would come along and bring the entire enterprise to an end. So it's hardly an exaggeration to say that there were mixed feelings among the participants and from the, that from the outset the, the assembly fell far short of unanimity. As I mentioned in a previous talk, on November 8, 1963, which was well into the second session of the council, Joseph Cardinal Frings of Germany openly and harshly criticized the Holy Office, which had been known until 1908 as the Holy Roman and Universal Inquisition. Alfredo Cardinal Ottaviani, Secretary of the Holy Office, made an articulate and impassioned defense. This exchange came to be regarded by many as the most dramatic and perhaps the most pivotal moment in the Second Vatican Council. The criticism leveled by Frings against the Holy Office had more to do with how the office was run than with the doctrines it upheld. In other words, the differences were not about substance, but about form. Nevertheless, this exchange, this public exchange on the floor, and, you know, Paul VI opened all the sessions up to the public, this exchange surfaced and solidified a division among the members of the council 
Further to this, it gave the media grounds on which to categorize bishops and theologians as liberal or conservative. We'll return to Living Bread Radio Presents after a short break. This is Monsignor John Kozar, National Director of the Pontifical Mission Societies in the United States. Sister Maria Rosa knows what it's like to be a child alone. Orphaned at 13, she's forever grateful to the Franciscan sisters who took her in and cared for her. Now she returns the favor, finding women and children in need on the streets of her native Honduras and helping them on the road to a better life. Most of all, she says, they have to know that the Lord is good and that He loves them. There's a little orphan in all of us, and at times we need to be reminded of the Lord's infinite love. It's a lesson from the missions. Brought to you by the Pontifical Mission Societies. To learn more about becoming a missionary right where you are, visit our website at onefamilyandmission.org. Remember, if you're baptized, you're a missionary. Through prayer and sacrifice, in word and witness, we're all part of this one family in mission. And now the conclusion of today's production of Living Bread Radio presents. The consequences were grave. Attention was diverted from the stated purpose of the council. Discussion got tangled up in details. Dialogue became argumentative and the level of trust fell sharply. But we have to keep in mind here, and this is very, very important. We'll come back to this again and again. We have to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit does not suspend the law of gravity or the laws of human behavior. You can't think that the Holy Spirit is going to suspend the laws of human behavior. We're human. And the members of that council were human, even though it was inspired and, and I firmly believe, deeply inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what happens when differences surface within a group? They can be resolved only by reference to first principles which depend chiefly on the primary purpose of the group. Once the group's unifying purpose falls from view, conflict and confusion become the order of the day. I should have written purpose up there. Just imagine the word purpose right there on the top of that board. See, when you, as soon as you lose purpose, then you have conflict. It's, you know, like that story I told you about the, the Cheshire cat, you know, and uh, Alice in, where's that, Alice in Wonderland or whatever that one was? Where it comes to a fork in the road, and Alice says, which road should I take? And the cat says, well, it depends on where you want to go. And again, and Alice says, well, I don't know where I want to go. The cat says, well, it doesn't make any difference what road you take. <laughs> but purpose is what it's about. But, see, there are other consequences as well. Again, in keeping with the laws of human behavior, when a person, an individual, or an institution takes up a critical self-study in the process of identifying any need for change, guess what happens? The effort itself can bring on a loss of self-esteem, set off waves of fear and doubt, leave people introverted, aimless, and depressed. For organizations, particularly if this process is prolonged and intense, Self-criticism can stir up suspicion, generate judgmental attitudes, make participants defensive rather than open and creative, multiply hidden agendas, 
and in general bring on self-serving competition, polarization, and the loss of common resolve. Laws of human behavior. That's what happens. Anyone who is engaged in a so-called renewal after Vatican II will have seen some or all of these symptoms. I've been there. Just as a strong sense of purpose would have provided protection against these functional liabilities, any hope for reunification must rest on the same foundation, that is, the church's very reason for being. Vatican II did inflict a lot of, it, it, it didn't cause, but it was the occasion of a lot of damage done to the church. And any hope for reunification depends on going back to that purpose. But here is where we come to the heart of the matter. We have to do more than say that the church exists in order to evangelize. That, that isn't, that's not enough. The teachings of the Second Vatican Council, running to more than 100,000 words, give us a good idea of what that means. And what is it? What's the heart of the matter? Beginning with a description of what it means to be human. Wow. This was the task taken up by the Council's most notable document, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World. And Pope John Paul II, incidentally, visits this very same issue in most of his writings, most particularly in his encyclical Faith and Reason. The Pastoral Constitution catalogs the triumphs and atrocities of the modern world, the abundance of wealth and the abject poverty, the freedom enjoyed by the few, the political and psychological slavery suffered by the many, the racial, economic, and ideological disputes that disrupt the peace and threaten the very existence of humankind, the progress and change brought about by advances in science and technology, the consequent changes in human structures, basic attitudes, moral values, legal practices, and religious beliefs. This, the, the Council catalogs all these things, and all of these happenings, good or bad, led to a cultural upheaval so sweeping as to rival that of the Industrial Revolution and the Age of Reason. Working from this panoramic view, the document then offers a thumbnail sketch of the human person, describes who the, what the human person is, an embodied spirit, endowed with dignity, gifted with intellect, with moral judgment, free will, self-awareness, yet beset by countless evils, hounded by a sense of incompleteness, and living under sentence of death. This description offers no immediate answer to the riddle of human existence. However, it sets up a working hypothesis based as it is on a definition of the human person whose own experience can verify the validity of these premises. Now, this is an existential approach to natural truths. It's on a level of reason. It moves into the realm of revelation and grace, relying persistently on reason to recognize the presence of realities that admit of no explanation except in terms of a higher order of being, one that can be known only by faith in a trustworthy God. Pope John Paul II often remarks on the importance of this question in regard to evangelization. As he points out, since the image of personhood is the core component in culture. In other words, the way we define a human person is the core, that's, that's where all your culture is based on that. If you define a human being as just a, 
a mechanism, electromechanical discharges in your brain, and that's all, well, that's what your culture is going to be. It'll be scientific, rational, and it won't have any sense of uh, soul or anything else. But since the very purpose of evangelization is to transform the culture and cultures of the world, we better start out with the right definition of the human person. Those two concepts are closely interrelated. Now, if faith and reason do not work together, all hope is lost. The Pope compares these two gifts from God to two wings. In the modern world, both of them would appear to be broken. How did this happen? Almost all pre-scientific writing was given to wisdom literature, reflections on the person, society, human life, in terms of good and evil, right and wrong, gods and demons, triumph and tragedy, laughter and pain. The Bible itself shares many characteristics with this literature, although in light of divine inspiration, it stands apart in a category of its own. The Bible proposes truths that are beyond unaided reason and carries a guarantee of being free from error in all matters of faith and morals that essentially pertain to our salvation. Now, by the time St. Thomas Aquinas came along in the 12th, 13th century, a large body of philosophy, theology, and even primitive inquiries into the natural sciences was already in existence. St. Thomas brought all of it into a unified whole, including the distinct yet necessarily interdependent disciplines of philosophy and theology. With the Age of Enlightenment, here's how we got here. With the Age of Enlightenment, reason was proclaimed not only supreme, but absolutely autonomous, accountable to no one or anything other than itself. So what happened then? This led first to the separation of philosophy from theology, which in effect denied philosophy the opportunity to examine the contents of faith from the standpoint of reason. Once isolated from the world of faith, the relevance of philosophy was drastically reduced. I mean, if there is no God, who cares? You know? Meanwhile, growing numbers of people began to mistrust reason, in that reason, as fully autonomous, was operating without moral accountability. Most of the people in this group, who were very suspicious of this autonomy given to reason, were people of substance. I think the church, you know, uh, the... the uh, Rationalists, they, they treated uh, the emotions as beneath contempt. The emotions were nothing but a liability, and uh, forget about the emotions. Now, the, the people that knew emotions were important because emotions are how we build a conscience. You don't feel good about doing something bad. But if you don't have your emotions involved in creating a conscience, an informed conscience, you end up being a, so a sociopath. All sociopaths, they don't have any, any sense of uh, remorse or they're doing something wrong because they just think, no emotions. Now, the people, though, that were these, these people of substance were giving, you know, they wanted to look at life at, de uh, at a deeper level. Uh, that the realities that once were the subject of philosophy, but what they did now, since philosophy was, you know, turned aside, they began to focus exclusively on faith. At the same time, those known as freethinkers began to deny faith's rationality. 
And that led to the formulation of what we call a dialectical Christianity, which means a reasoned rather than a revealed religion. Whence came atheistic or secular humanism in a variety of totalitarian forms. This is, this is a little deep, but I mean, you've got to understand this because this is the way this whole thing kicked off. And what were these totalitarian forms? They were racial, for example, in Nazism. They were social in fascism. They were economic in communism and un unmitigated capitalism. And all of these featured a pragmatic and mechanistic image of humanity and the world. An ideology tending toward nihilism in regard to culture, a pragmatism devoid of positive values. I will make a few comments later on education. But that's where education went. John Dewey, the father of American education, was a pragmatist, a utilitarian. Education was important because it enabled this person to become a, you know, a productive citizen, to make money. That's what education was, not to educate the person about humanity. You know, in the, in the Middle Ages, it's a little diversion, you know. In the Middle Ages, they had uh, what they called a, a trivium. Trivium was a three-way, three three-pass to... Uh, I should have a note here somewhere. I'll get no bite from my memory. Trivium was a three-way path to really no knowledge. And what was it? Logic, rhetoric, and uh, what was the third one? I, I thought I'd know it by heart. I can't remember it now. But anyhow, those three things were what was all about thinking. Not just learning facts and getting equipped to do something, but and able to know the human person. So what happened was philosophy was reduced to pragmatism, and as soon as it got reduced to pragmatism, it was put to what? The service of power, egoism, and self-gratification, losing all resemblance to the selfless love of wisdom, which the word implies. Philosophy means love wisdom. But it wasn't. It was it put to the service of power, egoism, and self-indulgence. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.